You are listening to Faith Church's sermon from this week. We are a church that is committed to loving Jesus for life and loving others to life. We hope that this message encourages you to follow Jesus with your whole heart. Lafferty. Um, Marlon is our Berks District uh, Field Director, and uh, he's been with us a few times before, and I, for one, am looking forward to what words he has to share with us this morning. So, Marlon, it's all yours. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be with you all this morning. Been looking forward to it, and uh, I know your pastor needed to take a break also, so it's good for him to get away and get rested up a little bit and uh, kind of maybe get regenerized and come back and really nail you again. I don't know. <laughs> but it is good to be with you this morning. If uh, you have your Bibles, uh, I, what I'm going to be doing this morning is maybe just a little different. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the book of Esther. And frankly, uh, I'm going to go through the whole book this morning. It's going to be interesting to run through it. It's going to be a we won't. Well, we should be out of here by three. No, I. Uh, <laughs> we do want to spend some time though in the book of Esther this morning. So um, it's just interesting as uh, we uh, come to a time like this, and uh, as you saw in the bulletin, I believe that the title is "When God Whispers." Um, have you ever gotten together someplace? You had an event, or you were someplace where you saw maybe a kind of a group of people kind of huddled together and they're over in a corner or over to the side and they're just kind of very softly speaking, whispering to each other. And you wonder, wonder what's going on. Really get your attention when they're doing that and then turn and look at you. And then you really wonder, what are they talking about? And I know I've watched sometimes uh, maybe a courtroom scene, you know, when all the attorneys want to have a little audience with the judge, and I guess they call it a sidebar, and go up to the to the uh, judge, and they're softly speaking, and you just wonder wonder what they're talking about. I mean, you have an idea, but what are the specifics? So, what are they talking about? It's just so interesting when you get into times like that, and yet when God speaks softly, when God whispers, it's not from the standpoint that He does not want anyone else to hear, but rather in contrast. He does not have to speak loudly. He doesn't have to yell to get your attention. Now, sometimes, of course, he does speak very softly, soft, still voice, just speaking to you and you alone. And I think what we're going to see this morning as we look through the book of Esther, there are a number of times where God kind of whispers, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's look to the Lord before we begin. Father, Oh, Father, it's just always so wonderful to be in your house, to be here with you corporately. Oh, I know we spend our individual times with you, and that's just wonderful. But sometimes it's just a little something more when we all come together to lift our praise, to seek our God, and to know that you're here with us, that you desire to even hear from us. And we desire more than anything else to hear from you. So, Father, it's exciting to be together. Would you bless our time, Father? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to first just kind of set the stage for the, this, 
particular story of Esther and how it, I think it relates to us today and how maybe it relates to you personally. But I'm going to give you just a little bit of, uh, I guess, some history here. But uh, this is all taking place in the 5th century B.C. in Persia, which is now modern-day Iran. And uh, just some interesting facts that I came across. Uh, the king in Hebrew is Ahasuerus, which we know him as King Xerxes in the Greek form. And his reign was from 486 to 465. So it's just 21 years that he was king. The place this story really unfolds is in the city of Susa. And um, this is kind of the spot where many of God's people had ended up. Remember when the Babylonians came in and took charge of Jerusalem, uh, tore down the walls, uh, burned the gates and so forth. And they took a number of the prominent people out of Jerusalem into the Persian kingdom. Many of them ended up here in Susa. And so um, this is where they're at. And, and I, as I was reading through that, I thought, so how big is the Persian Empire? Just wanted to take a look at that. And Persian Empire says is 2.9 million square miles. That's huge. They had roughly 44% of the total population at that time, which was about 50 million people. And I thought, even thinking through that, I said, well, I, I always like to have some figures. Give me an idea, something that I can kind of visualize. And one commentator says, take two maps of the United States and put them together. That's about the size of the Persian Empire. Huge empire. The main characters in this story are King Xerxes, Hadassah, which we know as Esther, and her cousin Mordecai. And then one other guy by the name of Haman who was much closer to somebody closer in our time frame that we might relate to, and that is Adolf Hitler. You see, because both of them wanted to annihilate, extinguish the Jewish community, all the Hebrews, get rid of them. That was their aim. Notice, as I mentioned this, I did not mention God, because he is not mentioned in the book of Esther. There are two books in the Bible that God is not mentioned at all. We don't hear anything about him. We don't see any place where God said, where, where God chose or, or God decreed. None of that is mentioned, not even the mention of Yahweh, Elohim. None of those words are mentioned throughout this book. And so we, as we look at that, even, even the fact of prayer, now I will mention later on, it's implied, but prayer is not mentioned at all. The temple is not mentioned at all. As we look at those things, we begin to wonder, so why the absence of spirituality? What's going on there? I mean, it just seems like, is God silent here throughout this book? Let me ask you, when, when you've had a rough time in life, you've gone through a hard time, did you, ever, did you ever feel like, where's God? He seems silent to me. Maybe right when I needed him most, I'm just wondering, I'm not hearing anything. I, I don't feel anything. Where is God? Do you ever get that kind of feeling like, have I somehow been removed from his presence? We hear others, you know, our, our friends, they say, well, I had a difficulty. 
And I started to pray, and boy, right away, God was right there. I knew it. God was right with me when I was praying. Others have said, you know, as soon as I started to pray, even before I said amen, I knew God's will. I knew exactly what he wanted me to do. But maybe for you, you begin to wonder, where is he when I needed him the most? If that's kind of the way you feel about some things, I would say the book of Esther is what the doctor ordered, or should I say what God ordered. Theologians use this term for this book, the quiet providence of God. They use that term providence to describe God's continuous control over history, over all things in heaven and earth. Yes, over your life, over my life. We don't see him. We may not feel him. We may not understand. We may not sense, but he's there. Even when we question, you know, where are you, God? He's present. We may not sense, feel, realize, but according to his word, he's everywhere, isn't he? Omniscient, omnipresent. That's God. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Of, and you can look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It really verbatim says that. Powerful word of God sustains all things. It was the power of God at work in that day, as we're looking at the book of Esther, and nothing has changed. Nothing has diminished for our day. He is in charge today as much as he was in charge in that day. I like the way Max Licato has stated this. He said, God has been known to intervene dramatically in all of history. By his hand, the Red Sea opened. The manna fell from heaven. A virgin gave birth. The tomb gave life. Yet for every divine shout, there are a million whispers. The book of Esther relates the story of our whispering God, who is on the scene but not seen. His mysterious ways superintend all the actions and circumstances for the good of his people. And again, I'll say nothing has changed, for our God is the same God today as he was in that day. He still wants to, to use you and me. He still wants to work in this world using you as his foundation to do that, to bring glory to his name. Just to give some further significance and credence to the fact of the power of God, in 1 Kings 19, this is the story of Elijah. I'm sure many of you know that story when he fell all alone like all the prophets were being killed off and he takes off running and he ends up in a cave and in uh, Chapter 19, it says, The word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The, yes, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came the gentle whisper of God. Even in Job, Job was, we all know that story of Job, and he was relating to, to God, his understanding that God has created everything. Everything we see around us, all of heaven and earth, God has created it all. And he goes on to describe all that, and he ends with these words in chapter 26. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? You know, if we can't hear, can't understand, can't realize the whisper of God, how are we going to know when he speaks thunderously? Never be mistaken. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten me. He is well aware of everything that we are going through, everything that we will encounter this day and all the days to follow. Whether that's something personal, whether it's something nationwide, worldwide, like the pandemic, God knew all that. God was present with all that. The story of Esther really begins here in verse 3 of chapter 1. In the third year of his reign, at his Xerxes, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles and the provinces, all the provinces were present. The purpose of this lavish event really was to convince the Persian nobles, officials, princes, governors, all the official military leaders that they would back him, that they would be with him as he goes against Greece. He would like to wipe out the Greeks also. It's interesting, at this time now, Xerxes is only 35 years old, and yet he is rich beyond imagination. Verse 6 says, The gardens were full of hangings of white and blue linen. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. It's interesting, when Alexander the Great entered the palace of Susa about a century later, he discovered in today's dollars and cents, the equivalent of $54.5 billion in bullion and 270 tons of minted gold coins. Can't imagine all of that. So Xerxes held a banquet in order to flaunt his wealth. And this banquet lasted for six months. Can you imagine that? I mean, we go to a banquet, you know, someday there's a banquet or an evening or whatever. It's just a, a few hours, whatever, but six months of banquet? Very extravagant time. Very vast wealth being displayed that everybody might see and understand the wealth that he has. I mean, there was more wine and food that anyone could possibly imagine. And after everyone was, it says in scripture, high spirits. Well, I looked at that, yeah, they were drunk. That's what that means. They were drunk after all this time. He decided to show off another one of his trophies, Queen Vashti. Verse 11 says that she was to wear her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. As I looked at that, too, I saw another ancient commentary on Esther. 
that Xerxes actually was saying to her, I want you to come in before all these people that I'm trying to impress wearing only the crown. That's all. I want them to see your body. I want to share with them the beauty that I have in you. We can't back that up, but that's what one of the commentaries said, these ancient commentaries. But remember, I mean, I have a tendency to believe that because remember, in that day, women were property. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And so just looking at that, I mean, we're understanding that Xerxes was, can I call him a bugger? He was. He was a real bugger as a king. So Vashti refused to comply with his wishes, and she is dethroned. She can hang around, but she can't see the king anymore. She'll be in a back room in the temple or the castle someplace. But four years then are past. King Xerxes returns from a failed attempt to conquer Greece. And he comes back to the palace, and there's no queen there to soothe his wounds and help him to deal with his loss. And so now is the time for him to order someone to become queen. We need to gather up all the virgins we can, bring them in, so that he might choose for himself the next queen. It's about this time, of course, that Esther comes on into the palace. But even before that, just looking at some of the thoughts, again, a commentary has stated that there were anywhere from 400 to 1,400 candidates, virgins, brought in to Susa to come before the king. Even in reading through that, it made it very clear that even if you weren't chosen, chosen to be any, any kind of significant, whether queen or something else, you were not allowed to go back home. Once you came into the palace, you became one of the concubines. You were there for the rest of your life, at least for the king's life. This is the kind of life and society that Esther and Mordecai were living in. I think that kind of lays a little groundwork of understanding what it was like in that day. In chapter two, verses five and six, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Okay, you read through that and think, oh, that's nice. So what? Those verses may not mean much to you, but listen, to a Jew... It was really stating where they're coming from. It's stating the fact that they have been taught with the Torah to understand who they are as Jews, as the Hebrews, and that they were to be identified as God's people. This is where I had you read the uh, Psalm 137, and uh, I think there it was really just pointing out that those who were taken into captivity, those who were in charge were asking them, sing songs of joy. And the question was, how can you do that? 
when you're in captivity, when you've been taken out of your homeland, out of your country. And yet that's what they were asking. That's what they're asking here also, that everybody, every virgin could be brought in before the king and be chosen. Here's the point that I'm trying to make here is Mordecai. I believe Mordecai became more of a Persian than he was a Hebrew. You have to understand that he was raising Esther with that mentality as, as well. It points that out different times here, how he shared with her. And the Jews that were taken captive coming into Persia, they would not want to be in Susa. This is kind of the center of, of political things that are taking place, the power brokers and so forth. They wouldn't want anything to do with it. They'd live out in the countryside someplace. But here we see Mordecai and Esther living in Susa. It's kind of like, it's kind of like living on Capitol Hill. And by the way, Mordecai had a job. He worked there at the palace. Mordecai was a prominent figure in a foreign land, right in the center of all the power and politics. Remember, to be a Jew, it was the sense of being called out from among the Gentiles. But Mordecai, Mordecai's on the payroll of a Persian heathen king. What happened in that day, I think, still happens today. It's losing sight of your heritage. I think that's what happened to Mordecai. We lose sight sometimes of our background, of who we are. It can easily happen. We get so accustomed to the ways of the world. We get drawn into so many things that are happening. I realize sometimes Satan is so sly in how he does this. But you, like I, if we look at maybe some of the older TV shows, things that went on, you know, 20 years ago, and what they were saying and doing then and what's happening today, you see a vast difference if you look at the difference in society and the communique and so forth and what's believed and so forth. And yet I think we get so messed up. Slowly we start to buy into what the world is offering. We have to be so careful of that. It's interesting just... I don't know, maybe it was two weeks ago, I was uh, watching an interview taking place, it was happened to be on YouTube, but it was an interview with somebody interviewing some Amish Mennonite families together. It was coming out of Ohio. As he was sitting there in their kitchen, you can imagine the big kitchen, and everybody's kind of sitting around there, and, and I was kind of surprised they were taking the interview, but they were, and uh, they said that uh, nobody has a TV, no, no TVs in any of the homes. Some had electricity, some did not. And uh, only a couple even got a newspaper. They didn't want anything to do with the world. They didn't want to be influenced by the world. Talk to them about well, what's your day like? Well, whether it's schooling or whether it was work. And after that, they got together, they just sit around in a group. They'd have their meals together sometimes. and. Uh, talk about the day, talk about what tomorrow's gonna bring, and then maybe they 
get some games out and play some games. That was the lifestyle. And I thought, kind of jogged my memory a little bit, and I don't know, maybe you're there too, but uh, years ago, even when I was still pastoring here in Leesport, we got together with two other families, and at least once a month, I like to play pinochle. Well, we got together to play pinochle, just to have some fellowship and fun together. And, uh, you know, it used to be fun to do things like that, and we did that with different families and so forth, just to have a game night or something like that with others. I think a lot of that is lost today. Frankly, I see it lost even with our kids and grandkids. I have a, a picture when my mother was still living and we had a birthday party for her at the home. Everybody was invited over. And in that picture, I saw one table with my grandkids. And the picture that I took, they were all sitting there playing with their telephone or their iPads or something, playing their games. They weren't talking, weren't interacting with anybody else. They just had their games with them. That's where we're at, I think, today. Times have changed quite a bit. Imagine what it must have been like for Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai would have been sharing a great deal with Esther. You realize what's taking place now? There's an edict that has gone out. We're collecting all the virgins in the area. You are one. And so he's encouraging her, follow through, go ahead. He knew what it meant. He knew that it meant that she was going to at least spend one night with him in bed. It's part of the system that they were going through. And yet he continued to persuade Esther, keep your nationality a secret. Don't let anybody know. Disguise yourself. Compromise your beliefs. That's what was taking place. Do we do that today? Sometimes we are faced with the issue, are you going to take a, a stand for Christ? Are you going to hold your ground for your belief, what the Bible's telling you and what God's telling you? Or do we back off peer pressure or something else? It's hard sometimes when we're in a particular group and we can see where it's going as far as the mentality, the conversation, and so forth. Maybe sometimes we think, oh, I think maybe I'll just back away a little bit and turn and walk away or something. Don't want to get into that. Or do we take a stand? In our society, we are permitted to believe whatever you want to believe. That's where we're at today. I believe all of us have fallen into that kind of temptation one time or another. It's kind of hard to take a stand sometimes, and yet we need to do that. We need to hold true to the belief of who God is, the belief of what the Bible tells us. People still hide behind their own facades. And yet God, God hasn't given up on you, he hasn't given up on me. God still loves us. He desires for us to, to stand on the truth of him and his word. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. 
and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So Esther is brought in to go through the beautification process that they had in that day so that she could come before the king. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, Many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She, that is Esther, pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Why? Why did that take place? May I point out to you the whisper of God? How did she find favor with Haggai? Why did he treat her so different than all the others? Certainly there was loads of beautiful women there. I think it was a whisper of God. Doesn't say that, but think through who's in charge here. Even at the end of verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. That includes King Xerxes because she became queen. Again, the whisper of God. Now I'm going to skip some things here to go on a little bit further, but Haman is one of the guys now that comes on the scene. Haman is a wealthy man. He's been interacting with the king. The king likes him. And all of a sudden, the king says, I'm going to make you number one after me. You are to be honored. Everybody should, as they see you, should bow down to you. I'm going to give you my signet ring to wear, just as proof of how much I care about you. And so every time that he was to be present any place where anybody was, they were to bow down. However, Mordecai did not. He refused to bow down. It does not state it, but here I believe is a reason. Remember, Mordecai was, at this point in time, had been much more Persian than anything else. But now with Mordecai looking at Haman, there was great animosity. Because Haman's background is an Amalekite. There was great animosity between the Hebrews and the Amalekites down through history. And he was not about to bow down to an Amalekite. I think this is a point in time where, again, we are seeing the whisper of God coming into Haman's heart and mind to recognize who you are. It's time for you to take a stand. You're being forced right now. Are you going to bow down to this guy or not? And so he says, I'm not. It's interesting here that Haman, not sure how he found out here, but Haman found out that Mordecai is a Jew. Again, as an Amalekite, what goes through his mind is, I know who I am now. I'm a man of authority. Boy, this is my great opportunity. Now, now I can get rid of all of them. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be like today's Hitler. I'm going to have a chance now to annihilate, to extinguish the Jewish community completely. And so we look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 
Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom and who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all of the other people. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. In today's dollars and cents, Haman is willing to give $20 million to extinguish the Jewish community. Remember the close tie between Haman and Xerxes. Xerxes thinks, boy, this is a great idea. However, Haman, you know, I like you. I don't need your money. You can keep your money, but go ahead, follow through. When I read that, I, I've, I had glanced over something, and, and so I, I went back to uh, verse 7 of chapter 3. It's an interesting fact here. Haman cast a lot to determine the day and month that this annihilation is going to take place. You know, the casting of a lot, like throwing a dice, somehow, whatever it is that they, however they did it, to come up with the idea of what time, when this is all going to take place. And it's so interesting. The same, the lot that was cast, the same month the Jews celebrate Passover, the deliverance from their slavery in Egypt, is the day he chose, the month he chose. That whole Passover time was then. I found it interesting. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? The whisper of God. God's going to bring about exactly what he wants, not what Haman wants. When Mordecai found out that all this was taking place, he went to Esther, talking to her, you need to go to the king. You need to say something to the king. We've got to stop this. All of our people are going to be wiped out. She basically is saying, I love you, cousin, but you don't know what you're asking. Mordecai comes back with verse, or chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Here's a very key part of what most of us know. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther acknowledges what Mordecai has said, and he asked him, would you spread the word among all the other Hebrews throughout the area to go on to a three-day fast in preparation for me to come before the king? This is where I believe the implication from my point of view is prayer. Why fast? Just not eating or drinking? What's the significance? Unless you're using that time to interact with God. Again, it's not mentioned, but I strongly believe this is where prayer had entered in. And so they did go through this whole process. Again, I think it's just the whisper of God. Behind the scenes, doing things. Bringing about what he desires. And I thought through, did Mordecai know 
I'm answering my own question here, but did Mordecai know that Esther would be accepted? You know, the whole process is they have to, the king has to extend his scepter to welcome her in to the court. If he doesn't, she's dead. The law of that day was if he didn't welcome you, you're killed, you're dead, you're out. Did he know that she'd be accepted? And if so, did he know that the king would change his mind to make some kind of amends to the situation? I think, again, it is the whisper of God addressing the whole issue with Mordecai. I think for him it was an understanding of coming back to his heritage, coming back to his roots, coming back to his understanding of who God is and what he's been called to be about. How many times have we been forced to come to a point in our own lives to say, I'm going to stand on the word of God. I'm going to trust God with whatever I'm facing right now. It's got to be of God, not me, not Satan, not the world. As you well know, the king did accept Esther. Another edict went out. In that day, the law of Medes and Persians could not be changed, but he could add to it, and that was giving the right to all the Hebrews to defend themselves. And so that kind of warded off the annihilation of all the Hebrew people. You and I, we are the children of God. We are children of the Most High. Because we believe. Because we have accepted what God has done for us in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on Calvary's cross for your sins and mine. We've accepted that. And in doing so, the same thing has taken place. He has saved us from annihilation, extinction. Extinction, annihilation is hell for us. But he gave us a means, a way, a process simply by accepting the atonement that he's offered to us. So we are, have that opportunity to be saved also. That is the picture of our God. I hope this story maybe got your attention. I mean, how far would we, how, do, how far do we think God would go to, to pursue us, to help us know him? How far would he go to keep us from ending up in hell, being annihilated? If we looked at scripture again, Abraham. He moved Abraham to another land. Moses, he called out of retirement. <laughs> Marlon Lafferty, he called out of retirement. God does whatever it takes to get our attention. Isn't that the message of the Bible? The relentless pursuit of God. He did that in the book of Esther without mentioning his name, and yet he was there working through all the details. How about with you in your life? Do you sense him? Do you hear him? Do you feel him? Do you, do you have any idea when God is whispering to your heart, your mind? You know, how many times I've, I've said already with a situation that has come up, oh, I'm just, I'd love to see the handwriting on the wall. You know, definite what God's saying. 
but how about him speaking to your heart and your mind? God loves you so much. And he wants to sometimes just a very soft whisper voice to say, I love you. Would you walk with me? That's what he wants. Let's pray. Father, oh, Father, we just love you so much. Thank you so much for your patience. Oh, I know for myself, Father, I know you've been patient with me down through the years. I know, Father, that how many times I have maybe taken a wrong step here or there, and yet you're there to welcome me back, help me get back on the right path again. That's your love. That's your desire. That's your pursuit after us. Thank you for loving us to such a a great degree that you would even give your son for our salvation. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope it encouraged you in your walk with Christ. You can find out more about Faith Church at wearefaithec.com. 